You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, as the Atkinsons mentioned, it is the second Sunday of the Advent season. And as I thought about you this week, I started wondering aloud, gosh, what do, what do they need? What can I get them for Christmas this year? And it occurred to me, nothing. Y'all don't need anything. You're fine. You've got plenty of stuff. You don't need anything else. You're doing just fine. But I don't want you to walk out empty-handed. So I have something to offer that you can't get anyplace else, I don't believe. And that would be you, but more fully explained. Or let me rephrase it another way. I would like to offer this morning you understood. You heard it perhaps said that the most abundant resource on the planet is water. I would argue with that and say it's not water. It's people. Seven and a half billion people alive on the planet today. And the vast majority of them, surprisingly, don't actually know what they are. I'm a human, but what does that mean? What all does that entail? What are the ingredients? What are the bits? What are the, the pieces of this casserole that makes up who I am and informs and instructs and influences why I do what I do? Not only that, but I come across so many Christians who are absolutely baffled by their own lives. I got saved, they will say frequently, but now I struggle even more. I don't understand. I thought when I became a Christian, things were supposed to get easier. I find that now that I'm a Christian, everything's actually gotten harder and I struggle more. What's going on? So what I would love to offer this second Sunday of Advent is you more fully explained so that you know who and why you are the way that you are. So we're going to be in the book of Romans. We're going to be in the second half of the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. And we say this all the time. No more is this true than it is this morning. Our Bibles read us more than we read them. This is one of those passages that exegetes and exposits us more than we exegete and exposit it. It actually sort of lays us open and helps, to under, helps us to understand who we are, why we are the way we, do, we are, and why we do the things that we do. So we've been talking now since August through the book of Romans. We've looked through the doctrine of justification after looking at the doctrine of condemnation. We're going to continue now to talk about sanctification. How now shall we live? In view of all of this grace and mercy that God has given in the gospel, how now shall we live? And the Apostle Paul, as he gets to the second half of the seventh chapter, wants his readers in Rome, and then by extension us 2,000 years later, to understand this. Here's my summary synthesis statement for the second half of Romans chapter 7. It goes like this. Your past is at war with your future for your present. Now, I want that to settle in and sink in for a moment because I think it might be one of the most particularly profound things that you hear because it explains you. I've titled this message, Tension, because if you are a Christian, there is a tension raging inside of you. Whether you're aware of it or not, there is a conflict, there is a tension. Your past is at war with your future for your present. Now, Paul's going to explain that quite a bit more here in Romans chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. As you're turning with me to the book of Romans, chapter 7 and verse 13, I want to remind you of the overarching thrust and theme and the thread of the book of Romans, which is the microcosm of the entire Bible. 
It goes like this. It is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important that we remember that as we get into a passage like this, because if not, we'll try to interpret it out of context. But that's the overarching context, that this is all about the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so how now shall we live? Romans chapter 7, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, Did that which is good, meaning the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." This is God's word. Let me say that another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let me say that another way. God wrote this. And even though it's a little bit confusing and Paul does this whole dooby dooby doo, I don't want to do and I don't want to know what I want to do, this is the inspired word of God for his people by his spirit. And so it's a little bit challenging, it's a little bit wonky to try to understand but we desperately need to. This is a part of the gospel proclamation. We say this all the time. I want to say it again. The gospel is the good news. It's the great story. It's the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's the gospel. It's happened. It's a done thing. He has done it. So why then do we still struggle so mightily? Well, we want to explore this idea, this doctrine fully of sanctification. So I'm going to walk back through this. I'm going to be uncharacteristically practical today. I'm going to be unusually helpful. I know it feels like oftentimes you come here, I read a passage, I say, hey, this is what it means. Good luck out there. Go get them. Not today. I actually want to be as intensely applicational and practical and helpful as I can because I think this gets right into the quick of every person in this room. So walk back through this very briefly, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? So we have to remember that Paul is still writing in the literary style called diatribe, where he's voicing all of these imaginary objections that are coming from his accusers and his detractors. Probably Jewish people, probably Jewish Christians, and then some very staunch, conservative, religious Christians and these churches in Rome. And they're accusing Paul of going after the big four. The big four, which could get you in serious trouble with the Jewish people, was denouncing or detracting in any way from God, 
Moses, the law, or the temple. Paul says, I'm not doing that. It's not the law. Last week, we looked at the middle part of chapter 7, and we said that sin is the problem. And it's a bigger problem than most of us understand. Sin is the problem. So did the law, which is good, did that bring death to me? Is it the law's responsibility that that's putting me to death? By no means. Absolutely not. May it never even be conceived, he says in verse 13. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. To show just how extensive and expansive and exhaustive sin is. To show just how deep and dark sin is. That's what the law does. It holds up a mirror and says, you think you know how bad it is. You're way worse than you ever dared imagine. Look closer. That's what the law does. It is a crystal clear mirror that shows us just how bad we actually are. Sin is the problem. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. Your translation might say, might become exceedingly sinful, super sinful. What the law does is it says, hey, you have sin in you. Look at God's standard of morality, of character, of purity, of holiness, and now look at yourself. And what we see is that the sin that exists within us is actually way more heavy than we ever dared imagine. It becomes transgression, what Paul says here. It becomes rebellion and defiance against a holy God who is good and who loves us. So verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now I will tell you that this section of Romans chapter 7 has spawned libraries of books and commentaries trying to figure out all that Paul means here. Who is Paul talking about in Romans 7? And there are about eight different possible interpretations of who Paul is talking about. Is he talking about himself before conversion? Is he talking about himself after conversion? Is he talking about just general principles, just a person period? Is he talking about the nation of Israel? Is he talking about Adam or any sort of combination thereof? I am convinced utterly that what Paul is talking about here in Romans 7, 13 to the end of the chapter, is Paul's own theological testimony. It's him. After conversion, it is Paul's struggle with sin as a Christian. Now that's instructive. Paul says, I am fleshly. I am fleshy. The law is spiritual. And what he means by that is it is of the Holy Spirit. It is given by God's Spirit to people for his good purpose. It is divine. But I'm not. I'm fleshy. He doesn't mean I am of the flesh. He'll he'll say that in different places and mean the unregenerate person. It's not what he says here. This is sarkanos. It is fleshy. I'm uh, I'm meaty. I'm carnal. Doesn't mean that I am in somehow the loss of my salvation. No, what Paul is saying is before I was converted, before I was saved, I never actually struggled. I was righteous according to the law. I was a pretty good guy. Good enough anyway. I didn't have this internal tension. But then I was converted. Jesus literally knocked me off my donkey. And now I have all this tension and struggle. Ah! Never had that before. And so I'm so thankful that Paul is very, very transparent and humble and declarative in describing his own struggles. He says, I am fleshy. The law is a good thing, but it's me. I'm the problem. Now, I would say that Paul is the greatest Christian ever. Jesus was not a Christian, by the way. Jesus is Christ. He's not a Christian. The greatest Christian ever is the Apostle Paul, and he is very transparent in describing all of his struggles, all the things that he has. He says, listen, I am fleshy. I am made up of the stuff of the corruption of this world. 
my material, physical being, my body, is not evil, but it is corrupt. It is not evil, but it is fallen. It is not evil, but it is fragile and frail. And it is prone to wander. It is prone to leave the God that I love. But Paul's super careful here to not drift into what's called Greek Gnosticism. You do not have two natures. You're not two different beings cohabiting in the same meat suit. That's not it. That's not what Paul's saying. That's an error of thinking. There's not two dogs living inside of you and the dog that you feed more is going to win. I get what the illustration's trying to help. Not helpful. No, no. He's saying your material being is made up of all of the fallenness of this corrupt world. Since Genesis 3 and the fall of humankind, your body, your material being is made up of all of this stuff and it is opposed to the plan and the peace and the presence and the person of God. Everything in the material created order is actually, because of sin, opposed to God and His purpose and His plan. But if you have been converted, if you are saved, then your inner being, your soul, your spirit, your immaterial aspect, those are made right with God. You have fellowship with God. Romans 5, you have peace with God. You have right standing before a holy God because of what Jesus has done. That's super instructive for us to understand. Our war, our past is at war with our future for our present. Our old self that simply by default practiced sin and faithlessness is at war with that which has already been done in the future on our behalf. Ultimately, there is a war. And I was talking to Matt McGill about this for a long time this week. We were talking about our own experiences. And let me tell you, that guy is sin-soaked. I and mean, I've got actually a couple documents I want to read. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but we were talking about this. I said, man, I, this is me. I, I, I lay awake at night and I groan out loud. I just like thinking about all of my failures and uh, all of these things. And I said, yes. And I told him, this is kind of my thought, my big idea for the morning, that your past is at war with your future for your present. And, and vintage Matt McGill style, he goes, yeah. And look what shape that makes. That's, that's us. That's the cross and the past, and the future, and here we are. That's why we have to take up our cross and follow him. This is what it's like to be on the cross. That's exactly right. There is a thing that happened. I was conceived in iniquity, David says in the Psalms, and yet there will come a time when I am fully redeemed, both body and soul. That's Romans 8. But both of those realities are at war for my present. That's what we have to be dealing with. And Paul says, I have been sold under sin. That's led many commentators to say, oh, well, that means he's a slave to sin. That means he's not a Christian yet. It's not what that means. Paul says, I am redeemed, and in this life, I am still beset by sin. Now, a lot of commentators do not like that language. They find it offensive. They wish Paul hadn't said it. This is God's word. Paul says what Paul intends, and Paul says what the Spirit intends. If you don't fully grasp and agree that, yes, the power and the penalty of sin have been removed, but not yet the presence, Christian, you are going to struggle. Just think about what the Puritans used to call those besetting sins. Anger. There's always this this simmering anger. You didn't lose that immediately upon conversion, or perhaps your arrogance, or perhaps your apathy. All of these things didn't go away, because let me put it as bluntly as I can. When you were converted, your body wasn't. If you could see what I see right now, you would say amen. Trust me. <laughs> there is hope, and it will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Case study right here. I got it. I get it. 
When you were converted, your body was not. It is still material and it is fallen and it is corrupt. Thanks be to God. It will be. That's Romans 8. But not yet. You are made up of this corrupted, fallen, fleshy material and your inner being, your soul, your spirit have been converted. There is this tension, y'all, of the already and the not yet. And the Apostle Paul felt it acutely. And I want to explain to you what he's going to say next is absolutely a bombshell. Stick with me. Verse 15. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. Jeremiah 17, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? We don't know why we do the things. We, we, just, we just do it and we go, What was I thinking? What was I thinking? And the reality is, we probably weren't. We're just on autopilot doing that thing that our material being wants to do. What were you thinking? How many times as a parent have I asked that of my kid? How many times as a person have I asked that of my mirror? What is wrong with you? Why would you do that? People don't even invent that kind of evil and stupidity, and yet that's what you do on a Thursday. I I know, I know. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever been there? I call that... Monday through Sunday. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what Paul's talking about. I feel like he's reading my mail. Like he's totally writing this about me. Verse 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Now this is a challenging piece of scripture. Romans 7 verse 16 is wonderful. Paul says, I agree that the things that I do are bad. That means I am a testimony. My own life is a testament to the fact that the law is good. Now, we have to sort of extrapolate this a little bit to understand really what Paul is saying. The very fact that I have tension in my being is evidence of my conversion. The very fact that I have a struggle, and I I can't be more emphatic about this because I still talk to people all the time that say, gosh, I got saved and I'm still struggling with this thought pattern or with this language pattern or with this action deed pattern. I can't seem to kick it, but I don't want to do this anymore, but I can't seem to kick it. And I'll tell them, that's proof that you're a Christian. They go, no, I don't even think I am a Christian. Christians shouldn't continue to sin like this. And I go, well, tell that to Paul. Tell that to me. The fact that you do have struggle and conflict and tension is actually an evidence of your conversion. Unconverted people have no tension because there's nothing converted about them. All that they are, all that they have, all that they do is actually opposed to the plan, the person, the peace, the presence of God himself. All of it. There's no tension. This is what Paul will say. I was a good and decent and moral fellow, but I had no tension. I was good. Because there was nothing that was actually in right standing with God. I was going according to, he'll say elsewhere, the pattern of this world. But if you're a Christian, your past is at war with your future for your present. He'll continue, verse 17. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. This is not Flip Wilson of the 1970s one. That's not my fault. The devil made me do it. It's not me. It's sin. Not what Paul's doing. He's saying, the me that is in the old realm, the old rule of sin, that takes over by default. It's not me, meaning my inner being, my spirit, my soul. It is the sin components of my material being. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. 
He's making a distinction. There is the converted immaterial parts of me, my spirit or soul, and then there is the unconverted material bit, and there is nothing good in there. Nothing. There's nothing good in your material that can honor and please and bring glory to God. Nothing. That's instructive. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I want you to hear that and as, as a stinging rebuke because it's how Paul means it. I know what I'm supposed to do. I do not have the ability to carry it out. So any message that says you just need to try harder to be better is a false message. You, in your strength, cannot. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Yeah, this is me. Verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. It's not my redeemed, regenerate being. It is me yielding to the strength of the flesh. What Thomas Aquinas called, yellow word alert, yellow word alert, brother ass. Like the donkey. It's how he referred to his own sin tendency. Stubborn, unrelenting, unyielding, unsurrendering. Verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. It's not the law of Moses. This is a principle. I find it, he says in verse 21, to be a, a truism, a truth. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Well, how close? Like right there, like right there, right right here, this. Because that which transports me and moves me through this material world is material and it's composed of that which is opposed to God. So when I want to do right, man, evil is just right there. I don't have to go looking for it. It's me. I have seen the enemy and he is me. It's right there on me all the time. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, my soul, my spirit, my immaterial parts, Verse 23, but I see in my members, that's my material body, another law, truth or principle, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I want you to hear that. There is a law of sin that dwells in your material body. It is opposed to God. And on default and autopilot, it will do that which is opposed to God's plan. Verse 24, Paul finally asks the obvious question after going through this incredibly low anthropology. What is a person? A person who is by default conceived in iniquity and opposed to the plan of God. Wretched man that I am. It's an interesting word, wretched. We don't like to describe ourselves as wretched. We like to describe ourselves as, eh, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than that section of people over there. A lot better than this section. Marginally better than that section. But I'm not wretched. No, Paul says, wretched man that I am. It's the same word that Jesus uses against the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Wretched. That's not good. That's bad. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then in verse 25, at the end of this chapter, we get the gospel. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. And by the way, in Paul's mind, he's a Hebrew, he's a Jewish person, mind and heart are synonymous. The seat of emotion and thinking, are, it's the same thing. In Hebrew, it's the lev, the heart. Heart and mind are the same thing. But they are not the same thing as the brain. All too many Christians in this day and age, in the 21st century, assume that heart and mind is synonymous with the brain. Not biblically. 
They are two very different things. Of course, they're related. Our brains interpret physical reality to our soul, said Dallas Willard, and he was right. But our brain is not our mind, nor is it our heart. They're very, very different. Related, of course, but separate issues. Paul says, I find this war going on. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. It's in me. I have seen the enemy. It is me. That who I was, my past, is at war with my future, what I ultimately will be for my present. And so there is this conflict. There is this tension. So let me just bring some implications to this and see if we can sort of synthesize this into some application for our walking around practical lives. Number one goes like this. Your experience is not your identity. Your experience is not your identity. I mentioned this in the first service and then someone caught me between services and says, all I do when I'm by myself is I just sit around thinking about all my failures and all my mistakes and all my shame and I can't get rid of it. I just, that's all I can think about. And I said, I know, same here. And I got a lot of material. I just sit around and I groan out like, oh, gosh. And if we're not diligent, we begin to think that that's who we are. It's not who we are. Our experience is not our identity. We have to be reminded, let me get as, as practical as I can, that something inside of you, something inside of me is always looking for an opportunity to betray me. Do you know that about yourself? Paul says it very clearly here in Romans 7. Something inside of you is always looking for an opportunity to betray you. And so what that creates is this tension. There is this war raging in me, this conflict, this tension. That if I'm honest, I'm really terrified I'm going to lose. Because I have so many times. I'm afraid I'm going to lose this war. And I, I don't really know how I'm going to survive. But yeah, you know, Jesus. And, but, but why do I still struggle so mightily? I thought I've been a Christian for decades. Now it's supposed to be getting easier. I think it's getting harder. This is what Paul will say. Our tendency and even our likely failure in all the ways in which we would be ashamed to be discovered is not who we are. It's not about what we do, what we have done. It's about whose we are. When your past goes to war against your future, remember, the future wins. That's future history. Shift your heart and your mind to that which already is in the mind of God, not to that which was and has been completed and finished and defeated. We have desires, and then we have our actual actions. We want to do things, but we end up doing the opposite. Why? Because it's just so easy by default to do the things that we don't really want to do. We have our inner being, our soul, our spirit, our immaterial versus our, our what Paul calls our members, our material bodies. How much time do we actually spend cultivating which aspect? Do we spend more time in our inner being or our members? devoting more attention and time to which aspect or the other. That's convicting. Our heart and our mind versus our body. We live in this tension of the already and the not yet. But we get to think of ourselves rightly. Let me get very precise with one more implication. Desire plus willpower equals failure. That's about as close to math as I'm ever going to get. Your desire to try harder, to be better, plus your willpower will 
always equal failure. Maybe not immediately, but within the next 30 minutes, you're done. You know it, you've tried it, you've done a thing, you said, I, that's the last time I will ever do that. And you mean it, and you're sincere, and you really are. And then you sort of, you know, get a little tired, you get a little sleepy, you forget. And the next thing you know, you're right back into the same thought pattern, the language pattern, the deed pattern. Your desire to not push your own willpower is always going to be failure. I hear this all the time in Christians. Thinking, this time, this time I can. No, no, you can't. Not for very long anyway. It's a wonderful demonstration in this passage of just how wretched and weak we actually are so that we pursue another solution outside of ourselves. So, three quick mistakes that I hear Christians making all the time when it comes to the, the tension with which they struggle. Three quick mistakes. Number one, that you can fight with your own strength. I can do this. I think I can. I think I can. The little engine that could was a miserable dumpster fire of a life. Okay? Because he was wrong. I know it's a cute little book. No chance. If you think you can, you're already wrong and deceived, and it's just a matter of time before the failure meter explodes. If you think you can do this in your own strength, the Bible is crystal clear that you and I cannot, so that we will be desperate for a solution outside of ourselves. Number two, that this struggle is visible, like it's something that you can measure or quantify or that you can actually uh, wrap your head and your mind around and your body around and like actually fight it on your terms. It's not on your terms. You don't have home field advantage here. It's not a visible thing. It's happening inside of you as a person. That's the tension with which we live as Christians in this age. It's not visible. Third mistake, that this can be fought with knowledge. Adam and Eve's problem in the garden was not a lack of information. Like, what was it that God said again? Let's see. It was uh, No, no, no. They knew all that they needed to know. And you simply knowing more and trying harder is never going to be sufficient. You cannot fight this simply with knowledge. So in response to those three mistakes, four perspectives we want to look at. Number one, renew your mind. We'll get there one day, Romans chapter 12. Therefore, by the renewing of your bodies, nope, sorry, your body's irredeemable. No hope, it's got to die. And many of us are well on our way. Things are falling off all over the place. I get it. That's all right. That's a grace. Praise God. Renewing your mind. Rethinking your thinking. Feeling deeply. Thinking rightly about God. That's how we respond to this is renewing our mind persistently. Always being about the business of renewing our mind. Number two, tune your heart. That great old hymn, tune your heart to sing his praise. How often do you train yourself to just experience the glory of God in the creation that you experience? It's all around you. Look at that sunrise. Look at that sunset. Look at those trees. Look at the the incredible pleasure and joy that I get just from experiencing the warmth of my family Or, or, or seeing people who are not biologically related, who are having fellowship and love for one another. Man, there's some, it's amazing. Who would come up with such a thing? We don't deserve those kinds of graces. Ah, I tune my heart to sing his praise. And I don't listen to myself as much as I talk to myself. I preach to myself. This is true. Not how I feel, but this is truth from God's word. Number three, eliminate isolation. There is no Clint Eastwood Christianity where you're all out there by yourself as the Marlboro man doing this as a solo sport. doesn't exist. You will get picked off from the back of the herd faster than a dying wildebeest. You cannot go at this alone. Eliminate isolation. It is a team sport. 
the call of our culture is, it's just you. If it's to be, it's up to me. Not in the Bible. You try to go this alone, you're toast. This is what Matt was talking about with confession. We confess our sin. It puts us on equal ground. I'm a wretched man in desperate need of the gospel. How about you? Yep, you're worse. Great. Number four, prayer is more powerful than might or want or wish. Just having knowledge, just wanting to, that's great until it ain't. But prayer, talking to and listening to our God. That is our fight, and I'll confess, I don't spend nearly as much time cultivating the inner self, speaking to God, telling Him everything that He already knows anyway, and listening to Him. Prayer is way more powerful than my might, or my want, or my wish. Because in this life, my past is at war with my future for my present. Now, the overarching narrative of the Bible, I think, is very instructive for this. If you look at the first couple chapters of our Bible, we have Adam. Adam is told by God what to do, and Adam forsakes the word of God and rebels. Fast forward a few chapters, we get to Genesis 12, and we begin to get introduced to the nation of Israel from Father Abraham. Israel is given more information. God gives Israel the law. The word of the Lord comes to Israel, and Israel forsakes what God tells them to do. They fail in a wilderness. Fast forward all the way through to the opening of the New Testament and we're introduced to this Jesus. Jesus is given God's word. He is baptized by the Spirit, sent into the wilderness yet again to be tempted for 40 days having not eaten anything. And this time Jesus is the one and the only one to defeat temptation. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is the only person in the universe who actually knows how strong temptation is. You and I don't know. We give in all the time. Is that horrible West Texas proverb? The quickest way to end temptation is just to give in. That's a terrible way to live your life. Don't do that. Jesus never does. He never forsakes the word of the Lord. And how does he resist? With the word of the Lord, with scripture. Every time he's tempted, He recounts, not just out of mindless rote, the word of God dwells within him because he is the living word of God. That is our resistance, is being filled with the word of God. His word do we hide in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. Your and mine, your past is at war with your future for your present. But remember, whose you are and what he has done, that's the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done. And Father, I pray for any who are here this morning who don't know you, who know perhaps some things about you, but truth be told, they actually have no tension whatsoever because there is no redeemed aspect of them whatsoever. And so I pray, God, that you would move by your spirit and you would lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that they would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and that they would begin the struggle like the rest of us. Father, for those of us who are here still listening to the voice of our past, all the things that we have done that were outside of your plan for our lives, and we have sometimes believed the lie that that's who we are, would you give us a fresh dose of your gospel, the righteousness that you demand given freely to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and that our future wins. And may we live accordingly may we not try to be triumphant in our own 
strength or our own skill, but may we rely on your indwelling spirit and the work finished by Christ, trusting that you will raise again even these mortal bodies. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for sanctifying us in the past. Thank you for sanctifying us in the present. Thank you for sanctifying us in the future. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.